Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, the podcast where we explore how assisted reproductive technology changes lives and our world. It allows people to become parents who never thought it was possible in ways they never even imagined or thought possible. We're here to tell the stories that go beyond the technology, real lives, and real people being touched and changed every day. Welcome back to season two. Uh, I'm Jennifer White, your co-host of the podcast. I am the director of Bright Futures Families, and I get the distinct pleasure of hosting along with my phenomenal co-host, sister, and co-director of Surrogacy Agency, Ellen Trackman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, uh, I'm an attorney. I specialize in assisted reproductive technology law, and I write a weekly column on assisted reproductive technology law, uh, which is the longest title ever for an area of law, So, which we call art law for short, but then people are like, oh, sculptures and paintings, right? So it's confusing. Um, anyway, so I write a weekly column. I love talking about the this area of law. It's just so so fascinating and interesting and new and there's so much gray area and so much variety, but also a real impact on people's lives and having children. Um, but today, so today, let me introduce you. I'm very excited that we are talking to doc, Dr. Betsy Cairo, and she has uh, an incredibly impressive resume. Uh, so she was the found. so she's a doctor for one, she's a PhD, good, very impressive. Um, she also is the founder of Colorado Cryogam, which is the only Colorado commercial sperm bank. Um, she is also a teacher. So she teaches, she's an adjunct, teaches at uh, the college level inside. She started a nonprofit. Uh, I know she has a TED talk out there. She kind of does it all. So it's really impressive. Um, so we'll be talking to, to Dr. Cairo and all things um, sperm related <laughs> today. We're here with Dr. Betsy Cairo, the director and founder of Cryogam Colorado. And Betsy has such a, a range of experience and knowledge and fascinating stories. I'm very excited to talk to her. Betsy, if you don't mind giving your own kind of background and intro, we would love that. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm pretty excited to do this podcast with you. So my history, uh, my experience is rather broad. I started in the animal sciences so my undergrad is in animal science with an emphasis in science and a concentration in reproduction. And then from there, after a couple of years working in that field, I uh, transitioned over to the human world, uh, <laughs> working for a reproductive endocrinologist in Phoenix and um, expanded her in-house sperm bank. And then from there, wanting to uh, come back to Colorado, started Cryogam. And then during that course of the time, uh, finished my doctorate in human reproduction and then um, started teaching as an adjunct uh, at UNC and CSU, and then started a nonprofit about uh, eight years ago. And see, I know, but for our listeners, what is Cryogam Colorado? So Cryogam is the only commercial sperm bank in Colorado. We do all that, <clears throat> excuse me, all aspects of fertility preservation, along with male fertility testing and sperm preps for IUIs for local physicians. So we do everything from anonymous donor to directed donor. We do personal cryopreservation for men looking at the possibility of sterility for whatever reason, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, vasectomy, medication. Um, we also do long-term storage for sperm, embryos, and oocytes. Great. Oh, that's great. That's a lot. Um, 
how how big are you guys and how long have you been in business? So probably with respect to the um, large sperm banks in the United States, we would be considered the boutique of sperm banking. <laughs> so we're not we're not well, huge in elite um, Colorado, of course. Of course. <clears throat> and sometimes, you know, you you want to go to a large department store, and sometimes you want to do the local, you know, boutique downtown. So we're that size. But it doesn't um, affect our quality or anything like that. We're obviously a very high quality uh, center. We've been around for 30 years. So I think we're one of the best kept secrets in Colorado. (laughs) Because people always go, I didn't know you were here. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, now all of our listeners know about Cryobank Colorado Boutique Sperm Storage. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 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 So if you've been around for 30 years, you have to have some pretty incredible stories, I have to say. <laughs> so I, I would love, to, love it if you could share with us a, a fun story or, well, maybe not fun because maybe not all of these are fun stories, but just something that has struck you, been an interesting situation that you've, you've dealt with in, in this industry. So I think one of the biggest questions that people ask is how long can sperm be stored and still be viable? And we have a wonderful story that relates to that. We had a young fella store with us um, when he was 18. He um, was uh, diagnosed, I believe, with um, uh, Ewing sarcoma. I actually can't remember the cancer, but he he beat it and went into remission. um, And about... 20 years later, he contacts us and says, you know, we would, I, I found, I met somebody and we'd mm-hmm. like to start a family. So we shipped the sperm and, uh, she gave birth to a healthy baby and, mm-hmm. uh, contacted us about a year ago and said, we're ready for our second. So we shipped it out. And those are the, those that are the stories that get you out of bed, right? Right. That's so That's amazing awesome. and meaningful that this technology allows that where you think, you know, I have cancer, I'll never be able to have a family. And you take these small steps to preserve your fertility. And 20 years later, you're, you get to have those kids. That's, that's amazing. It is amazing. And it's testament that, you know, we can store indefinitely as long as it's maintained at the proper temperature and quality going in equals quality coming out. And, um, it was all, it was a really happy story. Yeah, that was great. Okay. Because we've told one happy story. Now we'll go into the the sad story, you know, at least one sad story. So I know this scenario has happened multiple times in Colorado, as well as around the country and around the world where a couple is together and something really tragic happens and um, the man dies and she realizes that you know, they always wanted a family and asked for sperm to be retrieved. Have, have you had that happen? Uh, yes, more often than we care to um, acknowledge. I mean, it's a, it happens more than people think, and it's always tragic. And the issue with us is we can't retrieve sperm from somebody that we do not have consent from, uh, and it has to be written consent. And there are a lot of levels here because um, even if we had written consent, the specimens would have to be only used in somebody that the deceased had been sexually intimate with, and we would have to have written documentation of that as well, because we are regulated tissue by the Food and Drug Administration. They have something to say about not using sexually intimate partner sperm with a sexually intimate partner. So we've had to decline uh, all of those requests to the grieving family that we cannot store their reproductive potential of the person that they'd like us to because we don't have consent. 
Wow. And so even if they were married, if a couple was married and the, the spouse dies, there's, there's without a written document that he, he wanted children after his death and wanted his sperm retrieved, that's not something you can do. Correct. That's not something we can do because it's hearsay. Um, we've even had requests, well, he's an organ donor. Isn't that good enough? He's a, a registered organ donor. And the answer is no, this is not considered a transplantable tissue by the organ donor registry. It is not on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, it has donating, you know, preserving sperm that can result in offspring, uh, which can result in social security benefits and heir to an estate is a different category than donating a liver or cornea or kidney. Wait, you're saying my liver can't inherit from me? Ellen, wait, what? (laughs) Even though you may value it more than your actual beneficiaries, you know, that's (laughs) right. Livers are very important. (laughs) They are very important. I, I do love my liver very much. So, uh, so how can people do something to make to change that? You know that they could have uh, retrieve gametes after death and have them stored. Why by having written consent? I think I think the issue here is that people just don't think it'll happen to them. You know, it's the not me backyard. Well, this won't happen to me. Or we don't even even who wants to think about I you know dying. Um, so I, what would be great is if every young person out there, men and women, had a document in, you know, in their papers that said, in the event of something happened to happening to me, I would I give permission for my um, reproductive cells to be harvested with the intent of a potential offspring and heir to my estate. And have it notarized, have it drawn up by a lawyer. I happen to know a couple, you know, right here. So <laughs> we could probably go and, that route. And then, and you know, Betsy, and then, I know and, we have talked about this, about having a form that's prepared by an attorney and maybe putting it on your your website or one of our websites to have that, to see what the language should be, that they could go and have notarized and sign and use it. So we should definitely follow up on that. I, exactly. <laughs> I feel very strongly about that. I think that... We should do that. I mean, aside from that, we should probably change marriage certificates to have like a checkbox of like, yes, <laughs> I, yes, yes to gamete, to postmortem gamete retrieval. Yes to, you know, posthumously conceived children. Check, check. No. Yes, because then, you know, it can be challenged that the intent was not to have an offspring. And so if the, if the surviving partner, you know, requested survivor benefits, they may be denied unless we can prove intent. Mm-hmm. And I want to unpack a little bit the, the the part about sexually intimate partners. So if you are, for example, a, a gay couple or you have infertility issues that you couldn't carry, what if you knew that, God forbid, you died and your partner wanted to have your genetic children, but they wouldn't be able to carry that child? What would you do if you knew you might need to use a surrogate, for example? So when we talk about uh, not being a sexually intimate partner, FDA doesn't regulate, FDA regulates this tissue except for what they refer to as sexually intimate partner. And in that regard, so if you had, um, you had two women who are married, they would obviously need a sperm donor. That sperm donor that they're not sexually intimate with would have Mm -hmm. to go through our program and our regulations that uh, we follow in addition to FDA for um, a directed donor. So 
the tissue is screened and quarantined and tested and retested for the donor is retested. Mm-hmm. That would qualify that that's those sperm could go into anybody. If the person who has the, is donating the oocyte, but can't carry the pregnancy and she needs a gestational carrier, she, that oocyte and embryo is now considered donated tissue and it would be regulated by FDA. And so in this regard, it adds another wrinkle. If this person knows this in advance that they can't carry the pregnancy, then both of them would need to be tested according to FDA. The problem with that is, is that if you have somebody who uh, meets an untimely death and is on life support, there's going to be dilution factors if they were doing life-saving measures such as pushing IVs or blood transfusion. And so it complicates the concept of testing the sperm donor, the, the deceased at that time. I don't know exactly how FDA would look at that, but they would need to be screened and tested at that time. So your regular scenario of a same-sex female couple using a donor or a couple that, you know, maybe heterosexual couple, but using a known donor, what kind of testing do they have to go through and how long is that process and kind of not necessarily your, your cost, but like approximate costs out there for something like that? Using a, so directed donor is um, complicated, especially when we're talking about the donor is not the intended parent. Mm-hmm. So if the donor is not the intended parent and then there are intended parents, then there's two, there's a lot of different consents that have to be signed. But just basically speaking about the directed donor, we treat directed donors as we do our anonymous donors, which means they fill out a complete family and personal health history which we pre-screen and we flag anything that the intended parents may need to know about that could get in the way of potential outcome of the offspring or could get in the way of FDA approval. So once they pass that, then we start, then they come in for their first visit. They're given a complete physical blood work and urines are taken and a whole panel of STDs is, um, run according to what FDA's requirements are. And then of course we add a couple in there because we're licensed by other states and they have a, their own requirements. And then specimens are collected over a period of time and uh, processed and frozen and stored. And then the donor comes back six months after his last ejaculate, not his first, his last ejaculate and is then retested and rescreened. And if all of that clears, then the specimens can be released. So, we always tell people to manage their expectations. Yeah, it's a process. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're looking at from the time a donor begins the program, the directed donor begins a program to the time they're probably released, we say seven to nine months. Okay. And that's if the donor is able to collect the specimens in a short period of time. And that's a long time. Okay. A lot of people come in thinking right. like I'm getting older, I want to do this ASAP, and you know, that's adding close to another year. Right. Yes. right. People really do think that they're like, oh, we just walk in. It's the man's part is easy, right? You just do what you need to do in a cup. I'm done, you know? <laughs> and you can do that in the privacy of your own home. But if you ask us to be party to your liability, then we have our rules. <laughs> right. 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 Which makes sense. Um, so there's a lot of thoughts and issues um, and kind of um, interesting aspects of how donations are done with sperm or eggs um, in terms of 
whether it's anonymous, whether the inform whether the identity of the the donor is known, how does your um, how does your program work, and what are your your thoughts around that? We're talking about ID release, and so I can only speak to sperm because we don't do sure. oocyte donors. So, with respect to ID release of our anonymous donors, the way we work that is. Uh, our donors are anonymous. They they sign a consent with us that we maintain their anonymity. We uh, explain on all of our websites and information that our donors are anonymous, so there's no bait and switch or empty promises in that regard. However, what we do do is we try to maintain a file of our donors so that when an offspring turns 18, they can contact us they need to show documentation that this is actually the donor they use. It has to be typically done through a physician or, you know, healthcare provider's office. So we have medical documentation and then we make an attempt to find the donor. And if we find the donor, we ask them at that time if they would like to make contact. Mm -hmm. And we've had to do that a couple of times. Yeah. I was Um, curious if you had any interesting stories. Yeah. Yeah. We have a couple of stories about that. And, um, one donor, uh, one uh, offspring contacted us, and, and they were mostly just wanting to know if we could pass this information onto, the, onto their donor. They didn't have any expectations of meeting. They just wanted to know if we could do that. Just the so information I, that they existed and were alive? Yeah. Okay. Yes, uh-huh. and, and that they were willing to meet. Wow. So I actually did find the donor uh, and had a long conversation with him, and I gave him two options. I said... I can take a message back to this, you know, this genetically linked um, person Mm -hmm. that uh, has requested this information, or I can leave you their information because they they gave me permission to do that. And you can decide if you want to make contact. And the donor decided that they wanted the information from this um, request from this person. So I gave it to them with the uh, um, knowledge that I would let the, the offspring know that the donor has their information. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. And the offspring contacted me after I did that and said she, they really appreciated that. And um, that's all I wanted at that point. Wow. And that was it? That was it. Now, the second one, I actually do think they made contact, but I, at that point we were out of the loop. Mm. Got it. Interesting. But so in your experience, it's more common that, um, you know, the donors go on living their lives separate from this donation or donor conceived child. And there isn't that, that contact. Is that, is that more frequent from what you've seen? Yes, it is. I I think, I think what's important to remember is that when we decide for a donor that they're going to be an ID release and we say, if we entered our program and we had ID release donors and different consents were signed, some of these donors are 18, 19, 20 years old. And so they think, oh, sure, I'll be an ID release. Mm-hmm. But then they don't realize that they're going to be 40 years old with a family of their own and that someday there might be a knock on their door. And we feel that the, the trauma that could potentially be caused by this person who knocks on their door 18 years later and having that door slammed in their face is not worth that trauma. So that's why we keep our donors anonymous. Yeah. Well, I and I say it can be trauma to the donor's family. To, you know, the donor may never have never told their family that they did that. You know, their spouse may not know, their children might not know that they have. You know, and that's their right to keep that information private. I would assume. 
that's a big issue. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it's weird. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. Some donors actually forget they were donors. <laughs> I, 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 I was wondering about that. Um, <laughs> No, they do. Oh, yeah, I donated sperm. I forgot about that. That's funny. And their partner's going, what? You know, what? <laughs> so, I mean, I have an interesting, like, just turnaround question on that. What if somebody donated was intending to be an anonymous donor? So then something later happens. They become, you know, they have cancer. So then they have to go through chemotherapy. They lose their sterility. Could they turn around and come back and ask you, I mean, obviously they could, could they buy their own sample back? Is that a, I mean, is that way, is it database in a way that they could do that? Yes. And we actually had that happen. Oh, really? Um, mm -hmm. We did. Uh, We had a donor who uh, ended up, it was a donor that it was lucky for him. None of his specimens had sold. Wow. Not one. And uh, he indicated that he, I know. That he and this was years later, and uh, we still had them, and he wanted them back, and um, we ha- went through a tremendous amount of ID check, and all, you know everything matched up. He signed the consent, understanding that he's going, he's bought, purchasing this donor number, which, to the best of our knowledge, is him. That's funny, yeah. Purchasing uh, a donor, right. purchasing his own, yeah. yeah. He purchased his own. Oh. Which is kind of the same as personal crop preservation prior to chemotherapy. It's just that he just went around it the other way. Well, right. except that he didn't pay storage and he had the risk exactly. of losing all of his samples to being being donated to others, right? Being purchased, you bet. And so it just was an interesting thing that worked out for him. Right. Interesting. Um, and that I, I think we've talked about this before too, that, you know, it is really common that people find out they have infertility issues, but people don't go through storage. And of course it's becoming more popular with women where they have these kind of egg freezing parties and talk about, you know, where we can focus on our career and we can freeze our eggs. And, you know, obviously there's a cost involved and it's not guaranteed, but for, for men, it's a little bit easier to do that, that preservation of, you know, having a, a don't retrieval, uh, as you might say, for the gametes and storing it. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of when it's appropriate for someone to consider storing storing their sperm for themselves? I think it's always appropriate. I think everybody should do it. <laughs> I, I, we're, and I don't mean that because I'm trolling for business. I I mean it in in the most genuine realm of reproductive health and reproductive future you know we store we 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 should you know plan for our future we plan for our financial future we take care of our cardiac health we take care of our lung health we you know our joint health but for some reason our reproductive health people think is just a given that it will always stay the same and that you know it's our right to reproduce and really you know i've been in this business long enough i'm a reproductive biologist and it, reproductive health is pretty fragile. And especially as we get into the involvement of more pollutants and electronics and yeah, don't, don't carry your phone in your pocket. Is that in your, pocket. In your front and pocket? That's a, that's, that's, I've known, I've known people I mean, who are like, I'm absolutely not carrying my phone in my front pocket. It's too dangerous. It's absolutely. It's, it's true. And don't set that laptop on your lap, even though it says laptop. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so I, I think everybody should store. I truly, and I, and I'm not being funny or facetious. I think all men 
of reproductive age should store. Have you seen an uptick since this, um, since the egg freezing parties have become really big in the press and things like that? Have you seen an uptick in men trying to preserve their fertility that way as well? No. Okay. Uh, um, partly because men have you started any sperm sperm donor sperm preservation parties? Have you considered parties? <laughs> yes, it is a idea. I'm not quite sure what an egg. I'm not sure what an egg, oh, egg freezing party looks like either. Honestly, I haven't been to one. But I mean, it's a, that's not just. I think it involves martinis and cosmos. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, there you go. So it could be beers. You could just have beers, Betsy. That, that's what you need to. Do. Uh, well, what's interesting is when you're dealing with men, um, especially men of this age, you know, let's say between 18 and 35, they are the least likely population to take care of their health. They don't get physical yearly. They don't, you know, they, they just don't think about that. They're the least likely to go to a healthcare provider. So thinking that they want to store sperm because something could happen to them is probably pretty far down on their priority list. It, which is unfortunate. Right. right. Um, but the obvious one, I mean, aside from everyone, kind of more obvious situations are if you are um, at risk, right? Like if you if you do know you have cancer or you have a history of cancer in your family, are there other kind of thoughts that come to mind of when, aside from everyone, that you really should be thinking seriously about doing it? Well, we get a lot of, when, when we had uh, the, um, Iraq, the Iraqi war was, you know, ramping up and in Afghanistan yeah. and then also um, a lot of deployment. We saw an uptick then. Um, but over the years, you know, when we first would see men in the military and being deployed, a lot of them would store because they were affair, afraid of chemical warfare mm. and the damaging things like a beige and orange. And now a lot of the men store because they think they're not going to come home. Wow. Right. Interesting. <laughs> Have you have you had stories where that's happened, where they've mm-hmm. had children? Uh, not where they've had children, but where they didn't come home. Yeah. But at least their family had that, that option. Option. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so as a lawyer, I can't not talk about this. The, uh, the reason why going through testing using a medical professional is so important versus a home insemination when it comes to to using sperm. Um, so do you want to, <laughs> so two, I mean, there's two big takes. There's obviously the legal one, which I feel very strongly about, you know, in Colorado, we have a statute 194106, which says a donor is protected as being recognized as a donor only if a medical professional is involved. Um, so obviously a home insemination doesn't qualify and meaning someone who's a donor, quote unquote, can actually, you know, years later be finding, you know, they owe child support or, you know, they now have responsibility for this child they didn't intend. But I think there's a big medical element too. And I'd love for you to, to speak to that about the other reason it's important to go through professionals like you. I can't thank you enough for bringing this up and for pointing out the legal aspects of this. Truly, um, what happens is, is we have you know friends that uh, want to get around the directed donor thing for whatever reason, cost, time, you know, pick a reason, and, and that's so they come big. They, I get it. I get those calls. They're like, I don't want to wait. I don't have the money, and I, yeah. I get it. But I think that the bigger picture is it. It's far more risky not to spend that time and that money. But sorry, go ahead. Well, and what they don't, and exactly, and one of our, you know, our goals here is to protect the donor. 
And so when we have a fella who comes in and he has a quote, you know, air quotes, uh, sexually intimate partner and they're stirring because quote, he travels. Um, I don't, whatever you want to tell me, it's fine. <laughs> I, I'm fine with that. Lots of stories blah, 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 you do not believe. Wanna, Got it. <laughs> I don't really, but I don't, it's not my call. I, I'm only going to believe the consents that you sign. That's all I need to know. But when they come in and I explain to them, do you understand the risk you're running with respect to child support? I said, I don't care what kind of agreement you have with your sexually intimate other in quotations, <laughs> but understand that if there is not a medical professional involved in this, you could be on the hook for child support. Even if you have a document where the recipient says you're not on the hook because the government has a different opinion about that. Right. You know, not going to look at your pocket if this other person seeks benefits. Right. They're going to say, well, where's the biological donor? And, and we've seen it, I mean, from the legal side, we've seen a case like that where, um, you know, they found each other on the internet and this man donated to them. And even though they were all in agreement, they signed a contract, you know, they didn't have a lawyer, but they had a contract that they all signed. The government, in that case, the state came after him and said, no, 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 you didn't follow our statute. There was no licensed uh, medical professional involved. And you, in fact, are the parent and you owe this child support. And if you don't, you know, you're going to jail. I mean, really serious consequences. So real and so serious and so um, not known, right? The biggest secret kept ever. And what we, people get upset with this because we have a form that if you're purchasing donor sperm from us, you must sign what is called um, authorization for release, meaning the physician or the healthcare provider signs this form saying that they are under, you are under their care. Either you're going to have the inseminations done in the office or they're going to counsel you on home insemination. So at this point, a healthcare provider is involved. So now to go back to your question about home insemination versus insemination in the office. <coughs> so a lot of people want to take the clinical idea of conceiving out of their picture and they want to do home insemination. And I'm fine with that. I am, but it isn't as successful. Does it work? It does. We get pregnancies with people doing home insemination. Absolutely. But it doesn't work as quickly often, you know, and so there's more money spent and a lot of frustration. And our specimens are all pre-washed, so they're intrauterine insemination ready. So you can use them intrauterine, you can use them intracervical, you can use them intravaginally, but you can use them any way you want. Uh, they're pre-washed, so it saves you that additional cost at the medical office to have the specimen washed so you can have an IUI. So it saves you costs on that. So, and it increases the pregnancy rate. We've just That's just how we are. We've always had pre-washed. We've never had unwashed specimens. This is just what we've always done. So I think people need to understand that while I know it may seem clinical that you want you don't want to get pregnant you know, using a medical provider, I think it affords you a lot of protections legally and medically. What about the testing? So if you just use a, a donor who, you know, is just your friend and doesn't do any testing and what are the, what are the medical consequences that we're, we're looking at the risks that are, are common? Uh, STDs. I mean, I think, Right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a question, right? right? So I, this is a trick question. Um, so I think 
What people don't understand about sexually transmitted infections is they have what we refer to as a window period or a seroconversion time. I can't tell you the number of times where we have someone say, oh, my donor, we're fine. Uh, we tested the donor and they tested the donor once. All right. And I said, sure, you tested the donor once and that gives you a snapshot picture of that day. But the donor could still be positive. The donor could be positive for HIV, Hep B or Hep C because it hasn't what we call seroconverted, meaning if I got infected today and my blood was drawn tomorrow, I would still flag as negative. But then in three weeks or three months or six months, they retest me and I don't have any contact sexually with another person for those days. And I test positive. It's because I, that was the time frame of seroconversion. HIV has a seroconversion time frame of 180 days. And Hep B and Hep C are, can be anywhere from 60 to 140. So just because your donor tested negative today doesn't mean your donor is negative. And it doesn't mean that along the lines of those months that you're trying to conceive, that they, if they're sexually active and they're having condomless sex, they can get an STD at any time. So that's the beauty of freezing and quarantine because we know that tissue's clean. And am I right that it's not just a risk to the woman being inseminated, it's a risk to the child being conceived, that they could have that infection or that disease for HIV, for example? Or Hep B or Hep C, absolutely. Of course, yes. It, it will. Yeah, so forget yourself. Think of your child. Think of your child. You know. Okay, that's that's a bummer. Do you have any uh, any any <laughs> any happier, funnier stories that are coming to mind about your work, the donation, um, storage? You know, I don't. I think I don't know if it's. I mean, maybe it's funny. We, you know, we um, when people get tired of paying for their storage fee, which by the way is one dollar one point zero four one cents a day if you store with us, um, and it's even less than that if you go for a multi year discount, but Right. It's equivalent to, I think, $7.30 a week, which is probably equivalent to a Starbucks or a lunch out. But we're storing your DNA, right? Yeah, right. So And so people are like, well, I'll just, I'm just going to pick it up and store it in my fridge, my freezer. Oh, no, no. Are you serious? Oh, <laughs> no gross. way. Well, gross. Wow. Okay. And, and because, it, because people believe, and you know, logically so, that frozen is frozen, right? It, it, and can they stay frozen solid in your refrigerator at home, your freezer at home? And the answer is yes. But there are different degrees of frozen, right? And liquid nitrogen liquid or the liquid nitrogen vapor is very, very cold. And so when you take something out of liquid nitrogen vapor or liquid and you put it in your refrigerator freezer, that is warm to those cells. That's, that's, they warm up and then they start activating, right? And they start metabolizing and they die even though they're frozen. So what we do yeah. at that stage of freezing, we're looking at sort of a sus suspended state of animation, right? All metabolic, the metabolic process is slowed down so drastically that that's why they survive. So no, mm -hmm. you can't store your frozen specimens in your freezer. They'll stay frozen, <laughs> but I mean, they won't survive. I, I will say I get... Like my food in my freezer gets frostburn. I don't think I would want my sperm to have frostburn. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. And besides, it, yeah, it, they'll die. And then, and even with dry ice, people want to transport on dry ice. And while it's certainly colder than your freezer, it's still warmer than liquid nitrogen or vapor. And so we don't recommend transporting 
or storing on dry ice for more than three days. Uh, how do you transport sperm when you send samples to someone? How How is that sent? On a liquid nitrogen dry shipper. So these are little tanks that have vapor in the chamber, and so they're transported on liquid nitrogen vapor. Wow. FedEx? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, FedEx. We, wow. okay. we, ship, we just ship sperm to Australia. I was about to ask if you could do it internationally. That answered my question before I got there. Yep, and Mexico and uh, the UK. Uh, It's it's impressive, really. Wow. And these people who just uh, are like, I don't want to store it anymore. I'm just going to pick it up. Is that is that how it works? They can just just come pick it up. Yeah, it's theirs. Yeah, they can do whatever they want with it. Sure, you bet. (laughs) It's theirs. (laughs) They paid for it. Yeah. Starbucks or sperm? Starbucks <laughs> or sperm? Heck of a coin toss. And if we think of it as sperm, it's sort of, sperm kind of has this, I don't know, doesn't carry much clout, right? But if we say DNA, yeah. right, we're storing your DNA, which is what we're doing, sure. right? Mm-hmm. It, it seems a little bit more important. It's like yeah. sperm with a tuxedo. And less gross, it most, you know, mainly less gross. <laughs> exactly. I think I've become immune to the word sperm in my life, so <laughs> doesn't seem gross anymore to me. Okay, it's not gross to us. We, this is our yeah, language. I figured. Yeah. Yeah. you're even more immune to it probably than we are. <laughs> oh yeah, we can clear a bar faster than anybody when we're sitting down talking. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to come drink with you sometime. <laughs> oh well, you know, reproductive biologists—we have the most fun. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so, and I will say, I, I kind of want to lead you into the story just cause we talked about it uh, before this, but it, it, tell me how your staff deals with people on, on the phone. I mean, that, I, I just find this hysterical that you have to kind of coach people through the process of how to deal with the public. So, well, there, there are just certain words we don't use, um, and certain questions that we get asked. So for instance, if, uh, if they're scheduling an initial appointment, say it's a person for personal crime preservation they'll often say to us, how long will this first appointment take? And we'll say, well, you know, it'll take uh, however long it takes you to fill out the paperwork. Plus. And I don't know how long it takes you. Yeah. I don't know how long it takes you to collect a specimen. So, you know, but there's no time limit. We don't want people to feel like we're watching our clock. But but you must schedule, right? So you have like a scheduled room and you're not like, knock, knock, hey, next appointment, you know? Yeah. (laughs) We, we, yes, we do schedule. Um, we try to do that, uh, with respect to what we think the time frame is going to be. Plus we have more than one collection room. So in our Loveland office, we have two collection rooms in Denver, we have three. Um, and so we can, you know, kind of rotate those through. I think when we're working with, uh, patients, they'll often say, you know, when can I come? for their appointment. And so we stay away from words like that. We just try to stay away from words like that. Explicit warning on this episode. Exactly. (laughs) That's fantastic. So I, I would say, is there anything, do you have any parting shots you'd love to throw at people feelings on, um, on cryopreservation that you'd, you'd love to throw out there? Uh, I think we've covered it, but I think the important fact is, is that it's your reproductive health. You only get one card, right? In this whole deck of life, you only get one reproductive health card. And we just want you to play it wisely. You know, we want you to 
to, to value it and to respect it and know that it, it can really be affected by what you do, what you eat, what you're exposed to, you know, and, and to understand that and to, you know, elevate its status in your thought process and think about, you know, storing your reproductive potential. Awesome. Yeah, good no, I think that's a great takeaway. Excellent. Hey, Betsy, thank you so, so much. We have really enjoyed talking to you and, and giggling with you and also talking about the serious things too, but we've really enjoyed having you on. Well, thanks for having me. This has been great. Thank you. Okay. Lesson of the day. I, I think it's a little bit of a depressing one, but I think it's the, the, the moral, especially when we talk about these really sad cases where um, someone passes away in a couple unexpectedly is if we just, if you just signed a really simple document that says, you know, I'm totally fine with my partner, my spouse using my, my gametes, my sperm or my, my eggs for a child after I die. If you would just sign a very simple form to, to show clear consent and that really could, could change their life going forward and how, how hard a struggle they have to, to fight for that if they want to have a child. Um, so I know, I know Betsy and I are going to work on creating a simple form that everyone can, can download to be able to, to have that written consent if that's something they, they do want to consent to, but it's, it's really easy. You can just download it, sign it and have it on record and hopefully you'll never need it, but right. it's always best to have it. Always good to plan ahead though. I, I'm a planner. I totally, I, I get that. I, I, I feel very strongly about the planning ahead aspect here. <laughs> So, um, so in other things that people should plan ahead for, they should totally plan to call, give us a call and talk to us so that we, they can be on a future episode of our podcast. Uh, if you want to give us a call and leave us a message, it is 303-997-1903. And if you have any questions or comments, we would love to get them out here for everybody else to, to share with the world as well. Uh, also, please, please make sure that you go visit us on iTunes and leave us a review. We love to hear everybody's feedback and how they feel about us. So once again, as always, thank you to Chris at work at bird studios, because we really appreciate all that he does to make us sound uh, better and to edit out our giggling fits when we have them. So thank you, Chris. And thank you to everybody for listening. Thanks guys. Thanks.